From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. This week, Chapter 3, Only Worthless People, Catholic Christianity. Today we're going to be getting into what is the first unit of this study of the beginnings of the church. And um, this is what our primary textbook called Church History in Plain Language calls the age of Catholic Christianity. And um, that word Catholic is a big flag, uh, especially for American evangelical Protestants. Um, you know, I know at least for me growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, that was not a word we ever heard in any kind of a positive sense hmm. in the church. Um, and for some people, the only time you ever hear that word is when it's in reference to the Roman Catholic Church. So, Taylor, I know you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. Was that true for you? Um, what was the experience like when you kind of stepped out of the Roman Catholic Church? What was your relationship to that word? Yeah, it was definitely one of two sides, really. You, you had, when you're part of the Roman Catholic Church, Catholic means Roman Catholic, by yeah. and large. Yeah. And I think any Catholic worth their salt would tell you that it literally means universal. Right. But there's kind of the there's kind of the understanding that, but we mean Roman Catholic. <laughs> yes. Um, and then once you're not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you're right. It absolutely flips on its head to where that becomes kind of a boogeyman word. Mm. Catholic means that other church down the road. And so they, it's still in many senses is talking about the Roman Catholic Church, not so much the actual meaning of just being the universal church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of people don't have a whole lot of context for the universal church, right? Sure. We're, we're Americans yeah. in the 21st century. And so we live in this culture in our country where there are literally thousands of Christian denominations. Like mm-hmm. the idea of unity is something we just have no context for. Like it's hard for us to even fathom. Even it's hard for us to fathom even uh, evangelical Christian denominations who are very close to each other being unified together. That's right. right? Um, so um, Bruce Shelley calls this the age of Catholic Christianity because this was actually an age in which there were not denominations. There were not different Christian churches. There was only one church, and it was the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the unified, universal church, primarily in the Roman Empire. But as we will see, the Roman Empire was vast. It was enormous, and it covered like this huge swath of territory. And um, very early in the universal church, there were clear cultural distinctions between the church of the West and the church of the East. And Mm -hmm. we'll talk more about that in a minute. Shelley says that Catholic Christianity was marked by three things, a universal vision, orthodox beliefs, and an Episcopal church government. Right, so those are those are three. I think 
you know, kind of big things we need to unpack from mm-hmm. the jump. Um, if this age of Catholic Christianity is primarily marked by those three points, let's start with this universal vision piece. Um, the universal vision, I think, primarily has to do with what's sometimes called the apostolic witness um, or the teaching of the apostles. So if you go to Covenant Shreveport, one of the things we do every week is we say the Nicene Creed, um, which is something we will get to in this course because the Nicene Creed comes out of this first era of church history. Right. And um, in the Nicene Creed, we confess uh, that we believe in, in this Catholic and apostolic church or this Catholic and apostolic faith. And what's that? what that is alluding to in the creed is that um, we believe that the body of Christ is not divided in reality, and that even though we may have differences with other groups of Christians on points of doctrine, that the actual cosmic body of Christ, if you will, is all of those who have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That So whether you're a Methodist or you're a Baptist or you're a Roman Catholic, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Master, then you are a part of the universal church. Mm -hmm. And I think that throughout church history as well, people would say that the universal church doesn't only include Christians who are alive at present, but it actually includes Christians past, present, and future. And that when we talk about the universal church, we are also talking about people who have come before us in the faith and to some extent people who will come after us in the faith as well. So it is sort of a generational vision as well. And early on, this certainly marked the church. There was not this sense of distinction and division that we have today, even though there were some cultural differences among uh, various parts of the Roman Empire. There was this universal vision, and this vision was rooted in the teaching of the apostles, which was rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you remember Matthew 28, uh, this this thing that we call the Great Commission that Jesus gives to his apostles. Um, Jesus, uh, I think perhaps most famously, or what gets most talked about, is Jesus tells his disciples to go to kind of the ends of the earth and to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's often where people will stop when they're reading that text. But the last part of it is, Jesus says, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you, Mm -hmm. and I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so when we talk about this universal vision, it's that we would be united under the banner of the gospel and that we would all be seeking to be obedient to the teaching of Christ, yeah. right? To, to do the things that Jesus has commanded. And that is the apostolic witness. That is the teaching of the apostles. That is the apostolic faith, if you will, is the faith that is rooted in not simply the teaching of Jesus, but rooted in a desire to be obedient to the teaching of Jesus as well. So, that, so that's the first mark of this age of Catholic Christianity. The second mark is orthodox belief. And that word orthodox um, means like right thinking. Um, I, I, um, as opposed to wrong thinking, right? (laughs) Sure, as opposed to heresy. Exactly. Heresy becomes, heresy or, heresy could be defined as things that are counter to the teaching of the gospel or teaching of scripture. And these are major things. Major things. Yeah. 
um, often about the deity of Christ. These are things that pop up very quickly in the early church, people simply teaching things that are just wrong. Right. And so orthodoxy um, within the universal church becomes a major priority for the early church. Let's make sure we're all on the same page about what this apostolic witness is, right? Sure. What is this teaching of Christ that's been handed to us, and what does it really mean to be obedient to it, and do we all agree on that? Um, and that universal agreement is what is thought of as orthodoxy. Yeah, and this is doubly important when making sure you're on the same page is taking taking part or taking place across the entirety of the Roman Empire. Yeah. yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. You're not being on the same page with the folks next door, but it's the folks in essentially nations away. That's right. And then finally, that last piece is what Shelley calls Episcopal church government. Um, or what you will sometimes hear called as the Episcopate. Um, so the Episcopals were the first denomination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's confusing. When we're talking about Episcopal church government, we are not talking about the American Episcopal church or the Episcopal denomination that we see in America today. Instead, we're talking about essentially the hierarchy of church leadership that develops very, very early on in the church and really begins with the apostles and and springs from the role of leadership that they inhabited immediately, right, after the time of Christ. Um, Jesus clearly in the New Testament places authority and power in the hands of the apostles, and he makes it clear that the church uh, would be birthed out of the ministry of the apostles. And that just continues. The apostles ultimately... Um, elect uh, sort of heirs to their positions of leadership. Um, and, and by elect, I don't mean they went through a formal process of voting in all cases, but they name, rather, people who step into these positions of leadership after them. And um, that becomes this structure very quickly in the church where you have uh, priests or pastors who are functioning at the local level to lead groups of Christians, but then above those localized pastors or priests, you have bishops or overseers who are essentially serving as pastors to larger areas or regions. Um, and, and so those are the three things that mark this period of Catholic Christianity. You have this universal vision that universal vision is rooted in a right understanding of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, and it is marked structurally by this Episcopal structure. And I think the Episcopal structure is, to some extent, a safeguard for orthodoxy so that nobody is an island unto themselves, mm -hmm. right? No one person can say, hey, I disagree with all of you guys. I'm right. You are all wrong. But rather, because there is this structure of authority, um, anybody that steps out heretically or teaches something that is counter to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles has a structure around them that calls them on it, that yeah. throws the flag and addresses the issue. Now, with this epi Episcopal structure, we see some of this in the New Testament as we have elders who are promoting and, and choosing other elders or making deacons in places, but we don't see bishops, right? Is that a, is that a kind of a first century construction? Well, so, I mean, 
it depends. Or is it implied? Yeah. So the the New Testament uses this word uh, overseer. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that word gets interpreted as elder. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the term we use here at Covenant Shreveport is the term elder. Um, but but what it's implying is is somebody who has a position of oversight over the church. Um, you know, Paul clearly sends, for example, Timothy and mm-hmm. Titus in the New Testament. Um, into localized settings, and he calls them to appoint elders or overseers in those localized settings. Right. Um, so as the church grows and develops, um, that just sort of broadens out because the church goes from being um, these sort of scattered plants, church plants, to suddenly this really is infiltrating the Roman Empire, and we need a system that helps give oversight to all of these things so that, again, so that no, even no community is an island unto itself, so that we are all a part of this universal faith. Um, We see some of that in the book of Acts with uh, what's called the Jerusalem Council, Mm -hmm. um, where the apostles are essentially, essentially functioning in this overseer role for the church at large. Right. Um, Was that Acts 15? Maybe. I think so. Yeah. Somewhere around there, Acts 15. And this has to do with an issue that pops up early on in the church uh, regarding Gentiles and Jews um, together in the church. Like, what what are we asking of Gentiles when they come into the faith? Are we asking them to do Jewish things, like be right. circumcised and that kind of stuff? Um, and, and that question, which pops up in a localized context – comes up to the level of the apostles for them to discuss and debate and make a ruling on. Mm -hmm. So that basic model is what we're talking about. We see it in the New Testament. It's not some uh, post-New Testament invention. It's there. Um, And and even today in churches that still sort of embrace this Episcopal model, um, I think what they would say is that everybody are the elders. <laughs> so the localized church leaders are elders, but then also the overseers that are above them are elders. Like, And all of these elders come together to uh, bless and perpetuate the work of the church. Um, so those are the three things that kind of guide this era that we're in. And um, where Shelley goes here in chapter three, called Only Worthless People, is to really just give us, I think, what he calls a flyover of the Roman Empire. Because immediately um, from the time of Christ, Christianity starts rapidly expanding out into the Roman Empire. We primarily see this in the work of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and Paul certainly did a lot. But Paul was not the only person who was going with the gospel. By all accounts, the other apostles as well, including Peter and others, were venturing out into the Roman Empire and even past the Roman Empire potentially to places to share the gospel of Jesus. Shelley mentions Thomas, who is often known as Doubting Thomas, um, that the Christian tradition holds that Thomas actually went to India. And we know that very early on there was Christian representation in India, which if you're just looking at a map is not close right. to Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem sort of being the epicenter of all of this. Um, but be- very quickly um, there are communities, 
communities that spring up there. Very quickly, um, as he talks about at the beginning of this chapter, there are communities that spring up in a place called Edessa, um, which is what we would know of as Turkey today. Um, and uh, Turkey, um, a place called Antioch is one of the first cities, Antioch in Syria. There are a number of cities that were called Antioch, but Antioch in Syria, which is north of Jerusalem, is a place that also receives uh, the gospel very quickly and the church is planted there very quickly. Um, and many other places as well, places we see in the New Testament, like Ephesus, like Corinth, um, places that Paul went to. Rome, obviously, is a big one. And mm-hmm. Paul writes his letter to the church in Rome that we know as, as the epistle to the Romans. Um, he writes that letter to them, having never been there, um, and yet, even though Paul had not been there, a church had already been established yeah. that he is writing to in Rome. And so this is one of the things that Shelley does a great job of in this chapter is just giving us a sense of, one, how quickly this all transpired, but also how, how large and broad the area was. Um, another big one is North Africa and Egypt. Um, so basically, if you're looking at a map, this is just that northern part of the continent of Africa. Um, there is a place called Carthage in North Africa, which was a major hub of Christian activity. And then also Alexandria. Um, Alexandria, which is in Egypt, um, becomes another place. And Alexandria becomes a major hub for like Christian teaching. Um, and one of the things that you will see, and I mentioned this a minute ago, Taylor, is, is that very quickly there, there are cultural distinctions because the Roman Empire is so huge. There are cultural distinctions between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. And I mean, we see this in America today, right? Like there are cultural distinctions between the South and the Pacific Northwest, sure. right? There, there's a, it's a big expanse of territory in between those two places. And so naturally, you have an accent in one place, you know, you have, we, we eat this kind of food in this place, like you just have these cultural things. And those elements were there from the beginning. And yet there was this Catholic universal acceptance of the faith of Jesus Christ. Um, so there is room for distinction even in the early church. Like everybody is not a robot. Everybody's not drinking the exact same Kool-Aid so that they look at, look and sound and, and speak exactly the same. Um, but instead, the gospel uh, of this, you know, this orthodox gospel is being contextualized to these different places. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you will see, though, if you look at a map, is some of these cities are closer to each other than others. So Jerusalem... Antioch, Alexandria, those places are all fairly close together. If you remember, um, Jesus, when he was a baby, had to flee to Egypt, right? Egypt was close by. Like, if you're not great with geography, as as I know many people are not, you may not think of Israel and Egypt or Israel and Africa Hmm. being right next door to each other, but they they are literally right there. Um, the Sinai Peninsula, which yep. you know we read about in the book of Exodus, is kind of that bridge between those two places. And so um, that really is what we're talking about when we talk about the East, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch. Um, there are cultural distinctions there that are very different from Rome. Um, the Roman uh, uh, 
expression of the church. And even beyond that, we read here in chapter 3 about Irenaeus, who was in an area called Gaul, which is known as France today. Um, so, so venturing on it, on up into what we would think of as Western Europe, very early on, there are Christian bishops that we know of in what we would think of as England today. Um, and even at the very first church council, the Council of Nicaea, there are representatives from Britain there. Um, so within the first 300 years of the church, this has gone from Jerusalem and what we might think of as the Middle East today to Rome to France, to Spain, into England. Um, Church tradition holds that perhaps the Apostle Paul ventured into Spain um, before he was ultimately martyred. So, yeah, I mean, this just, this expands rapidly, and um, it it really is incredible, isn't it, Taylor? Yeah, this is more or less the known world. By By the end of the second century, and you're right, just looking at a map, you can draw a circle everywhere that we know there was a church by the end of the second century. And you've covered not only the entirety of the Roman Empire, but all of the Mediterranean, a little bit of Asia Minor, some Africa, and you're well into Europe. It's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, this was the known world. Um, and I mentioned the Great Commission earlier, which that, that commission is to go to the ends of the earth, right? right. Go to all nations. Yeah. And... And so a question historians ask is, what did that mean right. to those first century hearers? What did that mean to the apostles? It must have meant they did it. <laughs> There's a really fascinating book that is called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Uh, it, this is something I read uh, a while back. It's by a historian named Alan Kreider, who um, got his PhD at Harvard. So no slouch. There you go. Um, and he uh, he really examines the um, just the way that the church embodied the gospel very early on. But one of the things that he says that that I'd never thought about this before until I read this book a while back, and um, it has always stuck with me. And this is a quote from Kreider's "The Patient Ferment of the Early Church." He says, "Early Christian preachers do not appeal to the quote unquote Great Commission." In Matthew 28, 19 through 20. So, so he's saying that some of the most early evangelists and preachers of the gospel, they don't, they don't speak of a great commission. That's not language that they have. That Calling that passage in Matthew 28 the great commission is something that comes much later. Mm-hmm. It's possibly an American innovation, actually. Um, and, 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 and he goes on, he says, they don't, they don't appeal to a great commission to inspire their members to, quote, make disciples of all nations. They assume that the apostles, Jesus is 11 plus Paul, had done this in the church's earliest years and that it had already been fulfilled in the church's global expansion. So what Kreider's saying is that these earliest Christians, because the church spread so rapidly to like the entire Roman Empire, that these early Christians, as far as they knew, this was the known world, right? Yeah. We we have gone to the nations. I mean, there are Africans who believe in Christ, and there are Romans, and there are people in Gaul, and there are people in, um, you know, uh, 
Edessa and Antioch and Jerusalem and I mean just all over who believe in Jesus. So so this has been fulfilled. They weren't going, well, but we haven't been to China yet, right? right. We haven't gone to the Philippines yet. They, they didn't know those places existed. And so some of that comes, um, that, that understanding of, that globalized understanding of the world comes a bit later. And obviously the gospel is still going out to all of these various places. I want to end today with uh, kind of the last part of this chapter where uh, Shelley just asked the question, but why does this happen? Why does this spread happen so rapidly? And he gives us three or four reasons why he thinks this takes place. And the first reason is that early Christians were moved by what he calls a burning conviction that the event had happened. Mm -hmm. In other words, and and this, this seems silly to say almost, but it's like, these people really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? Yeah. These people really believed that. Um, and and it's I say it's silly because it almost seems like an indictment of the church today, right? Yeah, it's almost like say. when you say something like that, it's like, yeah, but do we believe that? Like, because if we do, why why does the church maybe not seem to have this burning passion? Sure. To carry the gospel to others. Um, so he says that's 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 primary here. Like these are people who really believed that this was true. Um, and then next, that the Christian gospel met a felt need in the hearts of people. Um, I think one of the things that seems to be the case is that the gospel was not initially primarily received by elite wealthy people. Um, But instead, in many cases, the gospel was received by a lower class of people, not necessarily impoverished people, but certainly more sort of what we would think of as blue collar type folks were some of the early recipients of the gospel. And um, there are many other, I think, modes of thought and philosophies that are being bandied about at this point in time. Stoicism is a big one that he mentions. And in a later chapter, we'll get more into some of the different philosophical systems that permeated the ancient world and that to some extent, um, you know, were opponents to Christianity. But people found in the gospel accounts something that made more sense and met more of their needs personally than anything else that was out there. Um, so, that's, so that's a huge one. That's two reasons that the gospel spread in these early centuries. Mm-hmm. And that may be two indictments against the modern church, especially <laughs> yes. if we're looking at the American church. Yeah, yeah. These are, these are folks who really understood that Jesus had invaded time and space, yes. that God had invaded time and space, and folks who really understood that they had needs that were being met. Yeah. And that's two questions that maybe you could ask of a lot of congregations today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, The next is that um, there was this visible sort of expression of love that that other people saw. And I think it's expressed in a variety of ways. There are all of these historical stories about Christians caring for uh, the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, Christians, and I think he mentions this here in this chapter, the church often provided burial services for the poor, even if the poor were not Christians. Mm Um, the church very early on um, seeks to serve, rather than people just be th- being thrown out onto burial piles and being burned, 
um, Christians really believe that people should be returned to the earth because, you, you know, from dust you came to dust you shall return. Um, so people see how they care for families and the deceased. And, and then finally, and this is a big one and that we'll talk about in our next episode, persecution. Um, the way that Christians faced persecution and especially the way that they faced martyrdom in the Roman Empire. And as we'll learn, Christians were often, and, and other criminals, were often murdered in horrific ways. We've, mm-hmm. obvi- we're obviously aware of crucifixion, but Christians would often be pulled apart by wild beasts. Um, they would be burned at the stake. They'd be drowned. Um, just horrible ways to die um, were commonplace for many Christian martyrs. And yet they suffered not as people who didn't have hope, but as people who had hope. And um, their suffering and their deaths were different than the deaths of other people. And the population took notice of this, and mm-hmm. it was deeply compelling. So those are four big reasons why the church spread at this point in time. And that's a good stopping place for us today. In our next episode, we're going to continue talking about the persecution of the early church because it is a significant thing that takes place. However, it's something that we might have a little bit of a um, an incorrect perspective on as well. So uh, we'll join you guys uh, next time as we get into all of that. 